0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Lowdown. Today, I am delighted to be joined by by my fellow Irishman, Alan Feely, to discuss all things La Liga. Alan, how are you?
1: I'm good, how are you? Thanks for having me on.
0: No problem at all whatsoever. Alan, so, come here, how does an Irishman find himself in Portugal speaking about all things Spanish football?
1: (laughs) I know it sounds quite convoluted but basically um, I was in Seville as my base uh, as a journalist and then um, you know as things are closed everything's locked down you can't really go to the stadium very difficultly into the stadium Um, it didn't really make sense for me to have to be constrained to one place and I can speak a good bit of Portuguese already so I wanted to kind of perfect it and become almost fluent so I said i go to Lisbon for three months and just kind of immerse myself here, and kind of just please really speak the language every day, and continue to work from a freelance perspective, which is what I've been doing ever since. So, so it's been good. It's been interesting. I'm going back to Seville at the end of this month, but um, I definitely enjoy my time in Lisbon, even though everything is closed, so I can't actually experience anything. I haven't been into any single bar yet in the in the country, or any single cafe even. So it's a bit weird, but the daily runs and stuff by the by the river is nice. Like so, I can't complain.
0: Brilliant stuff. So- And what does a common day look like for yourself (laughs) now,
1: Ellen? Well, basically, yeah, it depends on, you know, because I do shift work with a couple of different places, with La Liga Lourdes and also with Football España. So it kind of is conditioned by that to a degree. Um, And then on top of that, I have, you know, my podcast work with War Football Index and various freelance projects too. So every day is different, really. Like it's it's better across seven days for sure. Um, But, you know finding common rhythms I'd normally get up relatively you know early maybe eight o'clock or so because I've been normally working late the night before with matches and stuff Uh, and then I just have my breakfast and stuff Uh, I try to go for a run before lunch Um, and yeah I'm either you know editing podcasts producing a podcast uh, writing articles researching articles interviewing people uh, actually news writing doing social media work so it's quite varied really and every day is different
0: you've had no shortage of content to work with this season, <laughs> given everything yeah, it's happening It's been Very, very but, busy. But, um, I suppose kind of anyone from home, be it Ireland or the UK who comes to fall in love with Spanish football, per se, would have had a similar journey to both of ourselves, you know, sitting down at home, watching the Revista De La Liga of the likes of Jerry Armstrong, Terry Gibson, <laughs> Dylan Ballegade, Rob Horcone, all the lads. But, um, what was your earliest memory of Spanish football? What was that kind of moment that you can re- recollect?
1: Um, I'd say it was probably watching Ronaldinho uh, play for Barcelona in 2005, 2006. Um, I just remember watching him and watching that team specifically and just loving it. You know, I remember him going to Stamford Bridge when they were in that kind of maroon, kind of almost grey, brownie kit, and he scored that toe poke. Um, I just remember I loved how kind of, you know, insolent it was. And I remember getting a Barcelona shirt, like 2004, 2005 strip, and going to uh, Cummins Sports in Cork and getting um Ronaldinho 10 printed on the back in like this most basic white letters. It was actually an aberration. And it actually ruined the kid as well. Like, if I look back at it now, like that kid could have been worth something. And now it's just ruined because it's got this horrendous, like, GAA printing in the back of it. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was basically it. And watching, like, you know, as you said, uh, Revista de la Liga and just kind of exoticism of it. And also, we used to have Spanish students come to our, our house every summer. So um, we'd always be playing FIFA with them and playing football with them and learning about, like, you know, Spanish football and things like that. And it also an interest, too, in Spanish culture generally. So it kind of felt like a natural fit. It felt very kind of exotic and very kind of almost romantic, you could say, compared to English or Irish football, even though I love both completely English and Irish football. I still follow both of them, but it just felt for me like the lifestyle of Spain was very, very different and kind of foreign and exotic and interesting. So I was always kind of drawn to it from a, a young age.
0: If you kind of think about it, the generation before us, they had Galazzo on Channel 4 with James Richardson covering all things Italian football. We were quite lucky in the sense that although we just missed out from that period of time, you had the guys on Sky Sports. And back then, of course, with the Premier League, you were getting your three, four, Pictures every weekend, but with La Liga seems never ending, the games seamlessly, <laughs> nine, ten games simultaneously on at some times. But uh, of course, the two of us, we've watched a lot of Spanish football over the years, but just in terms of pure bizarreness and weirdness, where does this season rank for yourself?
1: Uh, well, it's very weird, obviously. I mean, like, not having fans in the stadium is a disaster because so much of what makes Spanish football good is the kind of, you know, the atmosphere on the terraces. Like, so when you don't have that, it's a big problem, really. And then also, you have how poor both Barcelona and Real Madrid have been this season. I know Barcelona picked up and sold Real Madrid in the last few weeks and months, but, like, you know, when you talk about their levels, they're eons below what they were at the last decade. Like, I mean, I spoke about Rondinho and that team. Uh, when I was growing up and they were very very impressive for sure but when I became old enough to fully appreciate football when I was you know 14, 15, 16 it was the Barcelona team under Guardiola and the Madrid team under Mourinho so you had like you know this unbelievable football team with all-time legends literally throughout the 11 you've Victor Valdez, Gerard Pique, Carlos Puyol, Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets, Messi you know and then later you'd Suarez Neymar as well And you had a team, you know, led by Cristiano Ronaldo, who was just scoring an insane amount of goals. You had players like Chabi Alonso, Kaka, Mesut Ozil when he was in his prime, you know, Sergio Ramos. Like, there was a ridiculous array of talent there, you know? And given the nature of how Spanish football dominated Europe, and also the way in which, you know, like, even Cristiano Ronaldo, when he went to Madrid, it was always talked about as a destination thing. So, like, it was always inevitable he was going to go to Madrid. And that kind of put in my mind this kind of feeling of like Spanish football is the place to be. Whereas this season, the way things have fallen off a bit and the quality has lessened a bit and economic power of the Premier League has kind of almost taken over a bit. And we're seeing that and how Spanish teams are suffering in Europe. It's kind of almost like a, a momentum changer, you could say, in the way it's perceived and the way they perceive themselves. So I think it's a weird season in that regard because it's the first time Spanish football is actually having a proper kind of existential crisis while simultaneously... Its big two are no longer the kind of all-powering, all-conquering behemoths that they were, and you also have no fans in the stadium. So it's kind of a weird triple threat. I think a lot of people in Spain are struggling with that, to be honest.
0: And you speak about it being almost akin to some sort of titanic shift, Spanish football. Given that triple threat, we've seen what's happened this season. You had in the past Cristiano Ronaldo calling Real Madrid a destination. In the past, you had Mourinho's majority, you had Pets, Barca. You had the best managers, the best players, and the best teams in the world, all concentrated in Spain. Now, you foresee a situation where the likes of Kylian Mbappe and Erling Haaland, two of the world's most coveted players at the moment, they look elsewhere than La Liga. Because we, you know, symbiotically, even if you look at the Barcelona presidential elections, A lot of these promises presidents make are based on transfer spending in the summer. We will bring X, Y, and Z in. Will there be a shift over time? Will that change over time? I suppose is a better question.
1: Well, I think there's already been a shift because even this election, like the talk has not been about Mbappe or Haaland, it's been about Messi and retaining Messi. So that shows the kind of priority within Barcelona is retaining they're crack, you know, Lionel Messi, of course. Um, and also just in terms of recruiting, it's difficult because like Barcelona don't have the financial power at the moment to kind of bring in, not, not to bring in, but to, to compete with, you know, a Man City or a PSG for Mbappe or for, uh, for, for PSG, or sorry, for Holland, uh, Because for instance, even after the two of them came to Spain last month and literally tore the place to shreds when Holland uh, scored a brace against Sevilla, and Mbappe's got a hashrie against Barcelona. Like, all the talk in the Madrid press the next day was who we you signing, Mbappe or Haaland. But the Barcelona press wasn't about that. They weren't even talking about that. Like, the press weren't even talking about that. And that shows how far Barca have fallen from a financial standpoint. But having said that, they're still the club that makes the most money in the world. So I think that once things go back to normal, if they ever do go back to normal, hopefully you've new president coming in, I think it would be Juan Laporta. I think they get clean relatively quickly. And I think that they get their financial house in order relatively quickly too. When Lionel Messi retires or leaves, which is a day that's coming uh, sooner every single day, I think his wages would be off the books. They'd be have more financial space to operate and then they'd be able to kind of reclaim what they felt was theirs. Uh, Madrid, they've been preparing for this summer for a long time. Their initial plan was to sign Kylian Mbappe and Eduardo Camavinga, who's an 18-year-old Angolan uh, midfielder who plays for um, for Rennes in uh, Ligue 1. And, and then next summer, get Erling Haaland, but obviously that's been expedited a bit because Mbappe's situation is making it look like he's going to stay in Paris more likely this summer. And Haaland has developed to an extent that nobody thought he would develop, so they may expedite that process. And also, Camavinga has kind of fallen off a bit, so I don't think he'd be as much of a priority this the summer, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a long-winded explanation, I think that it's not Barcelona and Real Madrid who are most affected by this, because they always have clout. And Madrid will still jostle, as with Barca, with Man City, with PSG for David Alga, for instance, who's the, maybe one of the hottest properties this summer window. But it's the, the problem lies with clubs below them. Like Valencia, for instance, selling Rodrigo Moreno to elites, Leeds, uh, potentially blowing um, Sevilla out of the water to sign Jose Campaña, who was a former Sevilla player player for Levante. Like, these kind of second-tier players are going to be going to Spain. And we're already seeing it. Like Martin Odegaard didn't go back on loan to Real Sociedad. He went to Arsenal. Danny Saboyas didn't go to Betis. He went to Arsenal. Uh, Sergio Reguilon didn't sign for Sevilla. He signed for Spurs. So you have players who aren't the best players in the world, but are very, very good Spanish players, you know, they're they're about being internationals, signing for, in the future, potentially English clubs like West Ham, as opposed to Spanish clubs like Sevilla. Like, as an example, Juan Jordan, uh, who is a Sevilla midfielder, very talented player. Um, player. He was actually offered more money to go to West Ham in the summer of 2019 when he left uh, uh, Leganes, when he left Ibar. Uh, than he was to go to Sevilla but he went to Sevilla because he felt like Sevilla was a better, sport sporting, better sporting prospect but as the years go by and the financial gap gets bigger and bigger and maybe Spanish clubs aren't fighting in Europe to the same degree who knows how many Spanish players will go to England do you know so I don't know I think it's, it's in a del- del- delicate place right now I think Madrid re- and Barcelona will be fine because you are massive behemoths but I think the clubs outside of that elite could struggle and I think that as a result, that could harm Remigin Barcelona in the long run too. You know. Staying on Barcelona, Alan, of course,
0: I mean, they've had such a turbulent week off the pitch. How badly needed were those two results against Sevilla?
1: It was massive, massive, you know, um, because even though it was a bad week off the pitch, it actually didn't affect their current situation because, you know, you know obviously all the stuff that happened was with Josep Maria Bartomeu and Barcagate was from the previous board. So it didn't really affect their presidential election or their kind of future projection, but it did affect their reputation and also the way they were perceived. Like they have made a laughing stock really in Europe, you could say, um, which is remarkable given where they were 15 years ago when they were wearing UNICEF on their crest. They were a they were a model of how to run a football club, but I think that it was a big 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 week for them, um, because you know to beat Sevilla in Seville at the weekends in the manner in which they did, switching to a three five two shape, kind of matching them physically. And then repeating the trick uh, with that remontada and the Copa del Rey on Wednesday night, winning 3-0. uh it was massive. You know, you saw that in the celebrations um, after the game, uh, and I think that you know they play they're playing in the weekend in La Liga, which is another chance to kind of you know remain in the hunt for uh, the La Liga title. Like Atletico are playing Real Madrid in the Madrid derby, so if they draw hypothetically, uh, it really opens up a position for Barcelona to push on, and you know this Barcelona team. While it has many flaws, it still has world-class players in the team, like Lionel Messi. Whoever has him in their team can do things. Uh, Igera Piquet will be out for the PSG game. He's got a three-week injury, but uh, you still have the likes of, you know, even like Pedri, for instance, who's a very, very good player, who's developed this season. Ousmane uh, Dembele on his day can be phenomenal. Antoine Griezmann can come up with the goods uh, when he's being trusted properly. So you still have players who can do things. So they go to PSG, in the second leg of the Champions League last 16 with a lot more confidence than when they played them in the first leg, if that makes sense. And I think that while another remontada, another comeback is unlikely, given the scale of the defeat and how much better PSG were than they were in the first leg, I think that it's not a sure thing yet that they're out, if that makes sense. So,
0: so I think man as well, he deserves some credit. I mean, there's been a lot of, sh- of putting... The square pegs into round holes this season. And case in point being, look at Oscar Mingueza, who made his debut, I believe, only in November. Sergino Des, uh, Pedri, as he said, as a 17 year old, now 18, coming into the first team picture. They've all coped well, but they've all been given a place within a system to kind of expedite that process. If that, if that sounds right. I mean, the reverting to that back three against Sevilla last week and then continuing it in Romantan earlier on this week in the top of the You see Messi come back, get a bit of form. He was dropping deep. Dembélé was uh, pushing up past the two centre-half. He was going down to get your Carlos. They caused them awful problems. Frankie Dion as well. He's made, he's made a great return this season. He's checked in with the goals here and there. What is the best solution possible for Barcelona fans at the end of the season? Do you think they can hunt down Atleti? Will Messi stay? Is that can they can they expect that, or is it just blind love at this stage?
1: Um, well, just on Kooman first. Like, I mean, I was a big critic of Kooman when he came in because, like, I'm an Everton supporter, and he had a very, very bad stint at Everton. He really he signed a lot of very, very average players for massive money, and really kind of messed up the club to be honest. And he was also well known for his kind of laziness and just you know a lack of commitment to the club basically but I underestimated the cloudy holes in Barcelona like in Catalonia he's revered genuinely he scored their the winning goal in their first Champions League triumph in 1992 uh, against Sampdoria um, and he's just a legend in the club you know and he's linked to that Cruyff dream team in the same way Guardiola is in many ways uh, if not more because Guardiola kind of had his playing career end in quite a sour fashion but Krohv didn't, but um, I mean, Kumin didn't. But anyway, I think Cummins did a good job. To be fair, I think he had a very difficult situation he inherited, and he's kind of done very well, as you mentioned, bringing in the young players like Oscar Minguéz. He didn't start for the B team last season, Do you know. Like it's his, his ascent has been remarkable, and now he he probably had his best game in a Sevilla shirt against Sevilla last Wednesday night, um, and a Barcelona shirt, sorry. Uh, but then you know, like he's made tough calls that not many people would have perhaps taken. Like, I mean, for instance, Pedri was supposed to be going on loan in the summer and he said, no, he's staying. He's This guy's a, a crack. He can play in the first team. Um, He's dealt with the messy situation very well. Uh, He's dealt with players like Ronald Arragu very well. Frankie De Jong has changed his shape completely. De Jong was playing as kind of a six and a double pivot alongside um Busquets at the beginning of the season and just wasn't working. And the thought was that he should be playing as a you kind know, of the sole pivot, you know, in the sitting number six. But like you can't really displace Busquets given all he's done. So then what he did basically was he switched the system to go to a three in midfield where he has Pedri on uh, Busquets' left, De Jong in his right, and Busquets sitting. And De Jong is almost like a kind of a breaking box to box player, and he's flourished. He's scoring loads of goals. He's assisting. He's getting into the box. He's playing with Yagada as the same Spain that can kind of ability to get into the box, and he's. I think he's a fantastic player, genuinely. Um, you look, and you also what's What, sorry?
0: You look in the raw emotion, even just in the celebrations after Wednesday,
1: they yeah. clearly are
0: playing for Ronald Koeman. You know, there's yeah. plenty of life left in the spurs the team.
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, also, like I was going to say, Fatih as well, who's another player that Koeman really has given a lot of life to and um, has been injured for most of the season. But that's a good point you made because actually after the game, on Wednesday night, uh, there was an altercation in the tunnel between Messi and Manchi, the sporting director. Because basically Manchi, uh, Sevilla's sporting director, called Koeman a crybaby during uh, the league game last Saturday. So Messi saw him in the tunnel after the game. He was fired up after the win. And he basically led a cabal of Barcelona players over to him. And they kind of almost pinned him against the wall, and were like, "Just you know, what are you talking about? Who, how can you be... You know, talking all this about our, our coach, basically. And uh, Manchi was like, well, you always win the same way. You always win the same way with the head of referees and all that kind of stuff. And they were basically saying, well, today you're going home, back to Seville, nice and warm, nice and cosy. So I, I think that kind of beef, that you know, Messi being fired up like that and kind of taking it to him and kind of sticking it behind uh, his coach is definitely a sign that they're playing for him. And they definitely do appreciate him. And I think the job he's done with the clean slate coupled with his status as a an icon of barcelona is definitely feeding into this where the players are behind him the club are behind him they want him to do well and his tactical switches have been good to be fair like against apategi for instance he kind of outdid them twice and apategi is one of the best coaches in spain uh, regarding their future prospects I think the PSG game could be interesting, although I would still say they're definitely not favourites to go through. I think PSG will still go through, but there's a chance that Barcelona could go through. If they get a goal, PSG are known to not be the most uh, mentally strong team in world football, we could say. So if Barca can get a goal, then who knows what could happen. Uh, In La Liga, I think it's really up in the air because like Atleti, in my opinion, are a team who are better suited to being on the shoulder than leading the pack. And I think that when you're leading the pack to the degree that they were and You lose ground, it can be difficult to psychologically adjust to the situation you find yourself in. So, for them to be going game by game with Barca and Real Madrid can be quite tough. I still think they're favorites, and um, they still have a lead and they still have a good team. And they have been struck by injuries recently. Like now, Kieran Trippier is back, which will enable Marcus Larante to be freed up in the final third, which would be a good thing. Um, so they're still the favorites for me, I think, but I would absolutely not rule out Barca or Real Madrid winning title. I think Real Madrid, they get into this mode where they're in the last 12 games of the season or whatever it is, and they're just taking it game by game, taking each game as a final, as Zidane always says. They can do it. They did it last season, for instance. And Barca, given their turn of form, they also can't be ruled out. They actually are in the best form of any team in Spain at the moment. So, yeah, it's interesting. There's definitely a title race. You know, I mean, it's you'd be a brave man to call it with any certainty. Um, but I think it's very, very well very much up in the, up in the air It's
0: quite yeah. ironic, just going back to Nessie's comments about Mancheid that uh, in fact his and Barcelona's next best chance of attaining silver, silver is actually going to be in Seville on April 17th when they play <laughs> Electrical Bilbao in the 2021 Copa del Rey final Now, we've begun the podcast by speaking about, of course football during COVID times now in Spain But I don't think there has been a set of fans that has missed out more (laughs) to live football than Olympico Bilbao's have this season. Winning the Spanish Super Cup in January. Um, Marcelino obviously coming in. They have the two cup finals in April, April 3rd. They play rivals Real Sociedad in the 2020 version of Copa del Rey. Well, two weeks later, they play Barcelona in this year's (laughs) Copa del Rey final. I just think it's a pure injustice, not only to Spanish football, but European football, that there was not a full San Memez in January to welcome back Marcelino and his troops. I think the scenes would have been absolutely extraordinary.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the whole point that that final was postponed until now was because they wanted fans in the stadiums. And that's obviously not possible. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, like the Basque Derby is one of the best derbies in European football, if not world football. Definitely one of the most unique. So, for their, to not be Fabius criminal, really, you know, um, and also given athletics achievements this season under Marcelino, who's done a fantastic job since taking over. I think that it's a real shame that they don't have that communion with the supporters that they, they really deserve, you know? Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to those games at the end of April, mid April. Um, it's in La Cartuja. I've been there before, actually. It's kind of a weird stadium because, um, like, from the outside, it looks like a hotel almost, but when you get inside, it's actually a properly kind of impressive stadium. But it's kind of a weird one. It, I much prefer, you know, the Sanchez b or the Benito Villa Marine, Sevilla, and Betis stadiums because they're very much, um, they kind of grow out of the city, you could say, and they're very, very kind of spiritually connected with the city, whereas La Cartouche has kind of a bit outside. Um, but yeah, it should be very interesting. I think, you know, obviously Marcelino has already beaten Cummins this season in a Cup final, given what happened in Super Cup. Um, so it's going to be very, very interesting, very competitive. Uh, yeah, I think you'd have to fancy Barcelona just based on the way they're playing and the kind of form they're in. Like they're in a very different place now than they were in January, for instance. But um, it's going to be a competitive game for sure.
0: When we're speaking about the matchday experience. Which stadium or stadiums do you miss going to the most?
1: Well, I miss the Sanchez Buan, of course, the Benito Villa Marine, Goodison Park, too, for <laughs> sentimental reasons. Um, but in Spain, yeah, I mean, like, I, like Las Carmenes, even, is a lovely stadium, Granada. Um, I don't know if you've been there before, but, like, it actually grows out of the uh, the Sierra Nevada. Like, in the background of the stadium, you can see the Sierra Nevada, which is, is stunning, like, on a nice day. It's really beautiful, it's really laid-back atmosphere only 22,000 seater, I think. So um, it's kind of, uh, it's small, but it's it's very, very homely, you could say. But there's so many stadiums in Spanish football, you know I mean? Like in Seville alone, you have two massive stadiums that are really passionate and really kind of connected with the city and the clubs and the Sanchez-Puan for Sevilla and the Benito-Venrin for Betis. You know, you've a plethora of them, the Ramon Carranza and Cadiz, um, you know, La Rosaleda and Malaga and Segunda, Camp Nou, Santiago Bernabeu. The Wanda the metropolitano Mitrop, not, not as much as the Vincente Calderón, but still an impressive stadium for sure. Um, San Mamez, anoeta you've loads of them, you know, so many stadiums there. And also not just the stadiums, but also the away trips, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like going on these away trips. Especially, like, I have friends now, like, in many Spanish cities, like, people connected with different clubs and stuff, so... I, I will have a great chance to meet these guys and girls and stuff and just kind of, you know, enjoy the city with them, enjoy the stadiums and the games with them. Um, whereas the moment we're just stuck watching on a computer screen, you know, which isn't the same, the same at all, really, Like is it? Uh,
0: I just think the fan the culture, the match day experience has to, be, has to be experienced. Anyone that's interested in football, and especially, just get yourself to Spain. I've attended several games myself now to Sanchez Peace One. I've been to the Buterki, Camp Nou, the Rosaleda actually, in Malaga with a with my father for the Cup del Rey a few years back. And it's just, you know, it's strange to say, even like the sights and the smells. It's just, you know, the sheer, the sheer deluge of pistachio nuts on the ground. <laughs> when You're leaving the stadium and the rush, everyone just leaving the stadium by moped, it seems. <laughs> in Spain, it's just so far removed what I'm used to back in the UK. But um, going back to La Liga now, obviously Barcelona, they trailed Cholas and the Atleti. First five points clear, they have a game in hand ahead of the Sunday's Madrid Derby. But it, it's a strange thing to say. Obviously, they're doing well relative to the chasing pack in Spain this season. But are they underachieving? I believe this is something you touched on earlier on. You see it in last year's quarter-final defeat to Red Bull Leipzig. You see it 10 days ago when they lost to Chelsea. It's almost as if they can't get rid of this inferiority complex. I think Cholo said it many times. The 2014 and 2016 final defeats still haunt him to this very day.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, like, you know, Atletico, the kind of club there that's, built into their identity and that's what makes them they there this kind of you know fighting against the odds underdog spirit but then sometimes you find yourself in a position where your favorites they can't really deal with that like I mean I think you see it in La Liga this season they don't like the favorites tag only so, I mean, never accepted it and now that they've lost it people are kind of calling them chokers again and stuff but it's it's more complicated than that um the European finals are definitely something that haunts them still. like I mean, the manner of those de- defeats and also the fact that they were against Real Madrid really kind of, you know, hurts the club and hurts the fans. Um, and yeah, I mean, the Chelsea game was weird because I felt like it was because of the nature of their form and also the injuries they had and COVID absences they had and that it really kind of affected them going to that game. So in my opinion, Cholo basically went back to basics with a team that wasn't used to going back to basics. Like Atletico in La Liga this season played completely differently to what they played in that game. They played with three at the back, their f- front foot, um, positive. You know, they, they looked to dominate games. And then in that game, because they were so frightened of, you know, getting a hiding basically off Chelsea, given how Chelsea were playing under Tuchel, shell and given how Atletico were playing in La Liga, I think he basically went back to basics in the hope of, you know, getting a scoreless draw in a way that would have mirrored the 2014 semifinal when they played Chelsea, they drew in law with them at the Vicente Calderon and then beat them 3-1 at Stamford Bridge. That was his thinking, I think, but it just didn't work because they conceded a goal, obviously. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, a lot of the punditry that was around that game was kind of a bit over the top because while I like we were very negative for sure, didn't try and win the game in the manner, which they should. I thought that they did break well sometimes and when they broke. And also the Chelsea goal kind of came out of nothing. It came out of a defensive error from Atletico, from Mario Hermoso, I think it was. And then, yeah, like you should lose scoring a bicycle kick. So I think it was one of those games where goals change games. As cliche the sound. I think that if Atletico had drawn that game in the law and are going to London with a scoreless draw in their pocket, we'd be saying defensive masterclass from Simeone. Just because they lost it. It's 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 a it's a disastrous error, do you know? Um, but yeah, I think there's definitely a bit of inferiority complex there. I think that it's something that they thrive off, but it also can be damaging too, I think.
0: And then someone, another team who wouldn't have such inferiority complex being their near-town rivals, Real Madrid, who've had quite an indifferent season, so to speak. Uh, right now, they seem to be seized by a medical crisis of some sort. There's... Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's reports of an investigation being made into Gregory Dupont's medical practices at the club, even, which is beyond ridiculous. Um, they have their own financial perils, of course, at the moment. Will Zinedine Zidane be back again to regenerate the squad in the summer?
1: Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think the medical thing is definitely weird because, you know, if you compare Madrid to all the other clubs in Spain and also the clubs with similar schedules to them, like Sevilla, uh, Barcelona and Atletico, their medical problems are far, far away, everything, you know, it's, it's like dramatically so, but then on the flip side of that, you have the likes of Luka Modric, Tony Cruz and Casemiro who are never injured. Like they've started 13 of Madrid's last 19 games together in midfield. So that raises more questions because like, how can three players in the most high-volume position who are all on the wrong side of 30? I know uh, Casemiro was 29, but more are or less on the wrong side of 30. How are they seemingly indestructible while Eden Hazard strains a muscle brushing his teeth? Do you know what I'm saying? It doesn't make sense. In the case of Hazard, I think it's actually because of his lifestyle choices to be honest because, like, I mean, it's well-publicized he came back from it's pre-season for pre-season and when he joined from chelsea like seven kilos overweight, and i think it's well known that he's a player who doesn't like the physical side of the game and he likes you know his food he likes chilling he's kind of a relaxed guy he wants to play football which is fine but that can work when you're 22 23 but not when you're 27 28 you know i think that's when your body will catch up with you um but going back to medical crisis yeah i think it's a weird one um because obviously they have world-class facilities of Aldewebes, they have world-class medical team, yet they're getting all these injuries. Um, but they're missing nine first-team players for the game at the weekends, you know, which is crazy. Um, regarding their season, yeah, it's been a weird one, I think. <sighs> they're kind of at the end of a cycle in many ways because their key players are getting old. Um, Sergio Ramos is coming to end with his contract that's been dominating the Madrid press every single day. Karen Benson, has also coming to the end of his deal. Just talk, he could go back to Lyon or will he stay at Madrid, who knows? Um, I think the players are definitely behind Zidane and that's been evidenced whenever he's been under pressure this season. They've always responded with a, a big performance um, when he needed it. You know, I think they really believe in their, their coach. Uh, is he the man to take them forward? That's a good question. Um, I think he hasn't been back in the transfer market really. Like he spent nothing last summer, for instance. Um, absolutely nothing. Uh, so, he has so much credit in the club. He'll never be sacked, in my opinion. I, I don't think he will be. I think that when he leaves, it'll be a mutual thing. And he's already spoken about that this season. He said, you know, when he was under pressure, he was kind of like, you know, we won La Liga last season. Uh, it's our title. We're the holders. And we have the right to defend it, he said. At the end of the season, if we need to change things, freshen up a cycle... Let's talk about that. But right now we're defending La Liga. That's our job. So, you know, I think this season they're still in the, still in the Champions League. They're still there. Do you know what I mean? They're still fighting there. Knock off football is a weird beast. Things can happen, especially well, in the Champions League. Do you know, you to, uh, La Liga. La Liga. Tell
0: about it. just seeing yeah. Madrid even a few weeks ago against Atlanta. <laughs> Missing nine-time players that Valencia playing sumptuous stuff. They just go early red card for Atalanta and Dre to control the rest of the game expertly. Yeah. And Ferland Mendy with his bloody right foot next to winner yeah. right at the death. It's just typical sedan if we have ever seen yeah. it.
1: Absolutely. And La Liga, too, they're still there. Like I mean, they know to do it. They won it last season. Don't forget, they have players with a championship in Saldi. Sergio Ramos is coming back soon. And they reckon maybe for the, the second leg against Atalanta could be a goer. Like, when he's in that team, they're a different animal altogether. And he's playing too for his future. Like, he knows that if you can lift the Champions League, if you can lift La Liga, they're not going to let him go in the summer. Do you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, it'd be interesting. I think a lot will depend on how the season finishes. I think it makes a big difference in Madrid. Like, they don't do progress in Madrid. You either win or you don't win. You know, so if they, don't, if they finish the season trophyless, I could definitely see him leaving because I think it's a natural kind of conclusion to their time together. But at the same time, I can see him staying. Um, will he do a full rebuild? I don't know if he has the enthusiasm for that. I know Raúl is in the background, uh, possibly taking over in the future. Pochettino was always a big option, but um, that's obviously gone now for the time being. But uh, it's up in the air. I think it all depends on what happens this season. Um, but what I will say is that I can see both situations happening with equal likelihood. You know, I can see Zidane staying next season, or I could also see Zidane stepping down. You know, so who knows?
0: You can never rule them out. I mean, in the UK, if we have Furby time, in Spain, I believe it's called Ramos time. Not just, you know, within a 90-minute game, but this time of the year, he just seemingly seems to come to life. Every every season and repeat, it's incredible, really, his longevity. Um, and then, I suppose, Hot on Madrid's coattails or his former club, Sevilla, a team in a city which you know very well. They are in great form. Until recently, the last two defeats to Barcelona have kind of set them back. I just feel so sorry for Yulam Lapetegui. I know he had his Europa League triumph last summer, but he's a man that just seems to kind of... i do not He just seems to fall to self-sabotage time and time again. It's just a, precar- it's a precarious position, of course, being manager of a huge club like Sevilla. But this is a man who's done wonders at Porto gets his dream job at the Spain national team, gets sacked the week before the World Cup or on the eve of the World Cup, moves to Madrid and he's gone within a few months. He's done great things with the Sevilla team, but just given the structures they have in place with Monchi, is it just conceivable that he hits a plateau?
1: Um, well I think that like Sevilla is a weird case because they had they had been having a good season like they started the season quite slowly like I mean Real Sociedad and Villarreal especially were flying in the early stage of the season and then uh, Sevilla were kind of quietly building in the background and then post Christmas really kicked it on in gear and then were suddenly talked about being as being potential title candidates but then in the space of a few weeks their, their, their season is basically catapulted I mean capitulated because you had the Dortmund game which was a disaster, obviously. Uh, Haaland, you know, tearing them apart. And then you had the two Barcelona games, which effectively ended their chances in La Liga and the Copa. So I think it'd be interesting to see how they respond from the situation for the final stretch of the season. I think the Dortmund game is by no means over yet because that game was kind of an aberration because in the first half, the way Lopatiki set up his team was quite open. Even Rakitic especially was just torn to shreds by a kind of a youthful and mobile dormant team and when they changed things in the second half they pulled it back a bit and they got the second goal so they made it 3-2 as opposed to 3-1 so I think that they're still in that fight for sure um, in the second leg Uh in La Liga I, I don't think they're in the title race I never did think they were in the title race to be honest I think that uh, their priority this season should be to make the top three a top four you know because people forget that Sevilla aren't guaranteed a fourth spot like I mean it was Valencia until very recently so I think Sevilla's biggest achievement this season will be to make themselves that big four and kind of grow on that can they do that or not it's difficult to say because you know their model is obviously prioritizing selling players as opposed to retaining players and growing so that could be helped with the kind of current pandemic situation but also you know the likes of Jules Koundé could still be on their way given how high highest profile is this season so I don't know I mean Like, Labategui is a character who's very, very emotional, and I like him a lot. I think he's a very, very good coach. He's done very, very good things, and obviously working in tandem with Manchi is worth wonders for Sevilla. But it's difficult to plot a route from them because, you know, it's very much a ring-fenced elite in Spain. And Atletico are one of those elite, um, for sure. It's very difficult to break into that cabal of teams because it's one thing going from a C to a B, but, but it's another thing going from a B to an A. You know, and like when it comes down to it, as Sid Lowe mentioned in his podcast this past week, I think that Sevilla are playing at their limit or in and around their limit at the moment. Whereas Barça and Real Madrid are playing way below their limits. So I think that this season was a mass opportunity for Sevilla to really gay crash that elite and kind of push on and make themselves amongst the elite of the elite. And they haven't done that necessarily. So I think it's going to be tough for them going forward, I think. If they can finish top four this season and do the same next season, it'd be very, very big progress. I was really hoping they win the Copa. That would be a great thing. I think if they won the Copa and finish fourth this season, they'd be delighted with life. But the fact that they can't do that now is more difficult. But I think finishing fourth is an achievement for them for sure. They want to become a Champions League club, you know, and they're until recently a Europa League club. So it's a big yeah, thing. Of
0: course. Club. And then I suppose in the Chess and Pack, you- Discuss teams playing at their limits. You look at their near-term rivals, Real Betis under Manuel Pellegrini. They've been a terrific teams to watch this season. In the past, we've always associated Betis with natural, flowing football under Kike Setien. With Pellegrini in there now, in the last few weeks, you've seen you've seen elements of what he's tried to incorporate on a grander scale with the playmakers he has at his disposal: your Sergio Canales, your Joaquin's, Diego Linares. I mean, for you, where do they rank in Spain as entertaining things to watch?
1: Well, given my connections to Seville, the city of Seville, I'm, I'm biased. Obviously, I want to see them do well. I want to see them progress. I have lots of friends who are really connected a Betis, the club. Um, but I agree, I think he's doing a fantastic job. I think Betis are a, a massive club. They're actually a bigger club in Seville, Sevilla, genuinely. Like in history of Smash Football, they're a bigger club because they have more fans. They've actually, the most fans... Outside of their city, than any club, as opposed to the big three, um, just because of the historical um, emigration of Andalusian uh, people, and in the region of Andalusia, outside of Seville, they're the most heavy supporter club. You know, they're really the club of Andalusia. So I think the size of their club, their expectation of their fans, coupled with the quality of their players. I mean, they've guys like you mentioned, Sergio Canales, Diego Linares, and Joaquín, but they also have you know people like. Ais Amandi, who's a good centre-back. Um, Nabil Fekir, who's a good player. You know, Borja Iglesias, who's not been as prolific under at, at Betis, but he's a very, very talented striker. I think they needed somebody who's going to be able to transform them from a team with potential into a team. De verdad, you know, a, team, a proper team. And Pellegrini has done that. I mean, he's used Guido Rodriguez, very, very intelligent. He, kind of an Argentinian kind of pivot to sit in the midfield. Um, And he's offered them kind of a structure and a base. And then he's used, like, you know, Sergio Canales, who I'm a huge fan of. One of my favourite players is Spanish football by a mile. I think he's a fantastic guy. You know, he's really come into his own this season, taking his game to the next level. And you've guys like Diego Laina, as you mentioned, coming in from the wings, kind of, you know, uh, here and there, developing as a youngster, coupled with the experience of Joaquin, who's a club legend. So I think that they're heading in the right direction, for sure. I think Pellegrini is a fantastic coach. And he's really shown the benefits of good coaching this season because they haven't signed many players in the past summer transfer window at all. It's been very much the same squad that Ruby had last season. So credit to him. He's in a very, very good job. I think they're certainly on the up because in the race for Europa League football, Villarreal is still in the Europa League. La Real are in free fall, you could say, in many ways. You know, I know their form has picked up recently, but I think they found it difficult to readjust to fighting for the Europa League after spending so long fighting for the Champions League. Um, Granada are focused purely on the Europa League. And, you know, Athletic Club are more focused on the Cups than anything. So I think that of these clubs that are remaining in the fight for Europa League places, Betis are the only ones who are in form, in rhythm, and without distractions. So I'd love if they finish top six. I think they definitely can.
0: And then on the other end of the entertainment spectrum, you have Unai Emery's Villarreal, <laughs> who've been. Well, you could say very unlucky this season to have drawn 13 league games. However, it's quite remarkable, really, how often they underperformed their XG stats. And with saying that, Gerard Moreno, one of the top scorers in the league this season, with 14, what explanation have you for that?
1: I just think... I just think that they're not good enough, to be honest. I think they're not a Champions League team. I think they're a Europa League team um and club sevilla in their level their level is significantly higher than the Real's level, in my opinion um i think they started the season really well but they're just lacking that special something that can drive them into the elite you know i mean they're they're a very good team they're a very logical team and very well put together team but they're just lacking that special something i think um and i think also emery's way of setting up his teams is not negative but it's kind of you know defense first and that's why they're not winning the games they should be winning and underperforming their XG stats even though they have strikers like Paco Acasar and Gerard Moreno who can score goals so yeah I just think that you know Villarreal also I think Villarreal this season are very much focused on the Europa League because that's what their owners want they want the trophy because Villarreal are actually a very small club in the history of Spanish football I know that we associate them with Raquel May and Diego Forlan and that team that went to the same finals as Champions League in 2005 but in reality they're actually a very very small club in Spain and always have been and it's only the last 20 years or so, 30 years, they've actually become one of the elites. So, uh, yeah, I think they'll, they could be one to watch in the Europa League this season, just because I think knockout football will suit them. But I don't think they have what it takes to put together a bit for Champions League football. Um, but having said that, I think they're, they're a good team with a very capable coach, with some very, very good players. But I don't think they have what it takes to trouble the elites of the elites, that makes sense. Okay, and
0: touching briefly at the bottom of the table, Alan? Very tight at the moment. <laughs> who, do you, <laughs> uh, who do you see possi- Who do you see escaping? And, I mean, it's just so tight. It's so tight down there at the moment.
1: Last time I checked, there was 10 points separating bottom place Huesca from ninth place Athletic Club. Like, it's just off the charts of tightness down there, you know? Um, this season, like... It's, it's almost pointless making a prediction because there's so much things going on and it changes week by week. I think based off my opinion, I think Wesco will go down. I don't think you can be bottom of the table for this long and not go down. Um, although they could viably stay up given the way the table is. Uh, I can see Valadella going down just based on the way they've been playing this season. Um, and then as a third team... I think Elche. I think Elche just don't have enough to stay up, you know, even though they've improved under Abelardo for sure. I just think that that's almost a manager bounce, and I don't think they've sustain their progress this season. I think the likes of Asasuna, you know, Ibar, they have more about them in terms of a synthesis with. The coach and the players and the way the club operate, they'll be able to kind of grit, dig their dig their heels in and kind of fight to stay up the season. But I just feel like Elche, Valdeleal, um, and also um, Cuesca will be the ones to go down.
0: Yeah, and and then you look at Segunda the season, Espanyol, Mijara, nip and tuck at the top. Huge pressure under both ownership groups to bounce straight back up. Do you see possibly Elmira spoiling the party or anyone else?
1: Yeah, I think I'd be backing Amira, Amaria there for sure. Um, obviously they're another Andalusian club, so I have a, a connection with them. I've been to Amaria a few times. It's a really cool place. It's also where they actually filmed uh, the Clint Eastwood movies. A lot of them, a lot of those westerns. You know, I like guess it's, it's literally like going to the desert when you go out there. It's crazy. It's like being in a wild western. But um, but yeah, I think you know, obviously Espanola are a funny one because I actually spoke with various people at the start of the season, but Granada. And I was kind of saying, Granada, should focus in Europe this season? Because it's a chance to do something major. And they were saying, no, look at Espanol, who you know are a bigger club than Granada. They have more resources, yet they were relegated last season with one of the worst seasons in their history because they focused on Europe League as opposed to La Liga. My whole point was that, you know, football is all about moments. It's all about, you know, earning these nights that you can remember forever and that's what Granada are doing this season by beating Napoli in the last 16 of the last 32 with the Europa League and qualifying for the last 16 like they're in unprecedented territory they're making history I think it's worth it and they're, they're doing well in La Liga they're on the top half of the table but Espanyol need to come back up they're a massive club who should be in La Liga uh, Mallorca also should be coming up too I think I think they're looking good to do that uh, and then I also think Maria, I think they're a good team they've done well in the cup of the season um, they were very well coached I, I back them for sure
0: Stuff. and then just finally to close Alan European Championships this summer hopefully they'll go ahead anyways Luis Enrique Spain have you any predictions?
1: Yeah I think that they could be dark horses to be honest I think they've been really really good They're in the final four um, they have some very very good players and Luis Enrique is a superb coach like he really is an underrated coach in my opinion I think a lot of the post Barcelona post Guardiola coaches at Barcelona were kind of all tired with the same brush um, but Enrique was different. And that was evidenced in the team he built that 2015 travel winning team. So I think that, you know, the mix of youth and experience he has in that team is really, really good because you've likes of Ferran Torres um, coupled with, you know, Sergio Canales. So you've guys who are in their early 20s breaking in, coupled with guys in their late 20s to early 30s getting their first run. So like Ferran Torres, Jose Campaña another player. Oh, sorry, Sergio Canales and Jose Campania are both guys who have made their debut at 29. Um and then you have the, you know, the players who've won so much with Spain over the past. Sergio Ramos is still their leader, but beside him is Pau Torres, who's one of the most exciting center back prospects in Spain at Villarreal. So yeah, I think that I definitely back them. I think that they could be dark horses. They're playing very, very good football. They've really clicked in recent times, uh, especially in that run before Christmas, the run of games they played, they were very, very good. So um as evidenced in their thrashing of Germany. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think they could be their horses for sure. I, I mean, they're not the same uh, about Spain team that dominated Europe for so many years, dominated world football, but they definitely have a lot about them.
0: Yeah, I don't think we can talk about Spain either without mentioning the resurrection of Jesus. at right back.
1: Oh, listen, <laughs> I, lo- I actually love him. I love him. Genuinely love him. He's a legend. Like, I mean, there's actually 24 kilograms between Jesus Navas and Lucas Acampas which is funny like the two Sevilla right side of players I thought was mad like 24 kilograms is a a lot like you know but uh, Jesus Navas like to be fair he has declined this season like I mean he's not playing as much as he used to play his physicality is broken down a little bit because last season he actually played every single game for Sevilla last season he played more, more football than anybody else like he's 35 years old like you know, and he's a slight guy. I love him. He's like gypsy eyed, like he's kind of a very gentle character. He, he suffers from homesickness. Um, but, you know, he's a really fierce competitor, very, very good technical player, constant professional. Um, and he's Andalusian to the core, Sevillano to the core, Sevilla to the core. He's 100% one of my favorite players in Spanish football. And I'm really, really glad that he's reinvented himself as a right back and is doing such good things at, at Sevilla and with La Roja as well.
0: Wasn't aware before in LaL, and I certainly uh, believe you are an avid fan of Sevilla, anyways. So,
1: <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not a Sevilla fan. I'm not actually. Like genuinely, all Andalusian clubs, I want to see them do well because that's that's what I'm, what I love the most. I love Andalusia especially. So, Almeria, Granada, Sevilla, Betis, you know, all these clubs, Cadiz as well. I want to see them do well. Like Sevilla, I talk with them the most because they're the most newsworthy of all the Andalusian clubs um, and all the Spanish clubs too, you could say, in terms of their undercover, but also quite newsworthy. So I ended up, I ended up getting asked about them a lot. But um, my team is everything. I've, I'm, I'm a one-man team. It's like, you know, they're like my wife. So I can't have any other teams aside from them. They're the only teams that make me angry when they lose and make me like have sleepless nights. But, uh, but I want to see all the Andalusian clubs do well for sure. Fantastic.
0: But Alan, anyways, I'm definitely going to have to get you on the podcast again in the future. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you, getting insight into the Spanish game, although you're based in Portugal now. <laughs> but uh, where's best for everybody to connect with you on uh, social media? Uh,
1: yeah, well, the best place is Twitter. Um Azul Feely, A-Z-U-L-F-E-H-E-Y. That's where you find me. Um, and yeah, it's mainly through Spanish football, obviously. Um, but other things too, other projects in the go as well. So follow me there to uh, keep up to date with that.
0: Fantastic. I'll link in the show notes below. Alan, top man. Pleasure speaking with you.
1: Brilliant. Thanks very much, Connor. Really appreciate it.
0: See you soon.